Where are you actually? I'm, where, where, what closet are you in? I'm in my closet. Um, <laughs> my husband's clothes and my clothes and they dampen the sound pretty well. I actually, I purposefully set this up with all of my former audition clothes around me. Nice. Just a symbolism. <laughs> Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. If you do not know Andrew Simonette, it is truly my honor to be the one to introduce you. Andrew Simonette began his career as a dancer and helped found and co-direct Headlong Dance Theater, a contemporary dance troupe in Philadelphia from 1993 to 2013. Andrew's artistic journey in Headlong focused on immersive participatory work like Pusher, where they sold a dance on the street like drugs, and sell a performance journey for one audience member at a time, guided by their cell phone, and culminating in his final project with Headlong, This Town is a Mystery, which consisted of performances by four Philadelphia households in their homes, followed by a potluck dinner. Outside of Headlong, Andrew's artistic work focused on dramaturging for various choreographers and performance makers, Kate Watson-Wallace, Mikado Hirano, Subcircle, and others. Andrew has gone on to become a writer, publishing his first young adult novel, Wilder, with Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, I hope I'm saying that right, in 2018. His second novel, A Night Twice as Long, came out just last year in 2021. But I know Andrew because of Artists U, which he founded in 2006. Artists U began as a professional development and planning program for individual performing artists in Philadelphia. When I found out about them in the spring of 2021, I devoured the website, immediately downloading the book and workbook, Making Life as an Artist. I felt like I had found my people. This is how they explain themselves on their website. Artists U is a grassroots, artist-run platform for changing the working conditions of artists. Make art. Don't starve. We want to change the conversations artists have in our heads with each other and with the world. We push artists to build lives that are balanced, productive, and sustainable. We are skills-based, not needs-based. We work to empower artists to create their lives and their art. We don't give advice. We don't do things for you. So you can probably guess I was devastated to find out that they had expanded to other places, giving seminars in Baltimore and South Carolina, but they had resisted the pandemic pull of the online course. Signed up for their email newsletter, figuring that would be the last of it. Until the summer of 2021, when I got an email, they had caved. They would be offering a workshop, sustaining in a time of change, online. It was a beautiful experience. Artists of all disciplines from all over the world gathering to work through the deepest questions of what it means to be an artist to create work you can be proud of and to sustain yourself and your family while doing it. 
This was the education I was missing. This was the inquiry you have to have when you're creating something new. When there is no structure in place because it doesn't exist yet. Or maybe there is a structure to support it, but you don't know about it. And here, other people are who are just like you, trying to figure it out. And now we get to compare notes. While there were several constructive ideas I walked away with, I think the most powerful was this. I'm not weird. I'm not special. The things I find hard about this life are hard for everyone. There is nothing wrong with me. In fact, I'm quite normal to have about five different projects going at any one time, to be a complete workaholic because my soul is in my work and my work is in my soul, to wonder if I will leave behind any significant mark with what I'm doing or if it's just something I'm doing to fill the time and because it won't leave me alone. I looked around and saw my people. People I look up to for their incredible ideas, for the ways they have served their communities by making them happen. And you know what? None of us really know how to do this. And we're not supposed to know how. It's okay to feel lost most of the time. Maybe it's a state of being that would be better defined as meandering. Andrew holds that space with the grace and humility of someone who has been there. After working in a tight collaboration in Headlong for 20 years, he believes in our potential as artists to figure it out together. That our power is in our ability to organize and support each other, and that it is a political statement to make a sustainable life as an artist. He's gotten the recognition, he's gotten the funding, and he's seen that the art has to be about something deeper. A key part of his workshop and his book is walking people through figuring out their mission statement as artists. Beyond being something prepped to put on grant applications, it's about having the big why that keeps us going. His is, I am interested in messy, complex humans colliding with rigid systems. I am interested in how unequal everything is and the stories we tell ourselves about that. I am interested in the stories men tell ourselves about everything. I am interested in what bodies know that brains don't. I think pretty is the enemy of beautiful. As we began, Andrew explained that he had cut an artist residency short because his son was going through a mental health crisis. He did this interview in the spare room in the counseling center where he works while his son visits his therapist. It took us a minute to find a spot in this room that looked like an elementary school that had a neutral background and a good sound. And when we did, I recognized that note in his voice the one where parenting feels like walking around in the world with an open wound. I'm still so grateful that he took the time to talk to me in the middle of all of this. It's here that we pick up, with Andrew doing what he does best, sharing his experience with honesty. I'm taking a breath and getting here. How are you? Yeah. How are you otherwise? 
Well, there's not a lot of otherwise. This is the big story. So, and um, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with, to be honest. So it's been really incredibly intense. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm sort of, you know, you grow the muscles you need for the crises you're in. And I'm sort of at the point, I'm like, okay, my child's in a mental health crisis, doesn't go to school anymore. And things could get a lot worse. Like, I'm like, all right, I got that. I got those muscles now. But um, mm-hmm. that's been, yeah, that's been the last month. I was at an artist residency actually when, the day after I left to go to an artist residency is when they had this crisis and that might be related. Me leaving might be part of it. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, this is another level. And I am talking to a lot of parents who go through, have gone through intense mental health journey journeys with their kids. And uh, Oh my God, it's just like, Oh, there's a whole universe. There's just a whole universe of like suicidal children. And once you enter it, you just are like, oh my God, this is everywhere going on. And there are all these kind of shell-shocked parents stumbling around in that world. And some really, and a lot of grace too. And a lot of people who are like, you're going to get through it, it gets better, blah, blah, blah. But it's definitely like, I don't know. It's like when someone gets cancer and you're like, holy shit, there's just cancer everywhere. And you, once you enter the world, you're like, it's happening all the time, right up the block. And, you know, mm. definitely has that feeling what's happening for you where are you actually where where what closet are you in i'm in my closet um (laughs) between my husband's clothes and my clothes and they dampen the sound pretty well i actually i purposefully set this up with all of my former audition clothes around me just as symbolism (laughs) and um yeah this is where i record and where is that like where where do you where do you live in Atlanta. Nice. Yeah, we just moved here from Bay Area back in May. Oh, that's a big change. Yeah, um, it's a coming home for me. So I haven't lived in Atlanta for 18 years. And we just moved to be close to my family to not feel like we were on the edge of the planet because my husband's from Germany. And so mm. his we had a nine hour time difference to his family. And then... <gasps> five hours of flying to my family and we were in a pandemic with a two-year-old and it was just crazy oh my god thank you for being here andrew thank you for making the time and thank you for doing what you do i know you start all of your all of your seminars and you start your book making life as an artist with a big massive thank you and that's been such an inspiration to me and it was such a huge moment for me when I opened up that book and read that and thought I don't think I've ever been thanked Mm. yeah none of us none of us are right no and it's there's this I think what I'm learning is there is this interesting line of being an artist that it's actually kind of freeing that nobody actually cares that you're doing what you're doing until they care you know Um, (laughs) but at the same time god what you're doing what you're doing matters and in the in the opera world in particular i believe there's because of this world of gatekeepers and this world of classical music where you can there are all of these rules as if that's something that should exist in art and you just always feel like you're asking to be there and every everyone actually thinks no you shouldn't 
Mm-hmm. So you actually, the tone you set for all that you do is thank you. And I want to thank you for that. Well, thanks. I got a little teary when you said that. <laughs> and a lot of people do. It's amazing how often um, that simple act of thanking makes people cry, makes artists actually cry. And it reminds me how hard we work at what we do and how difficult it is to understand its value Mm. it's just very hard in the culture we live in to have a clear sense of why our work matters and there's a lot of forces telling us the opposite and it's amazing to me how people have been doing this for decades and accomplished people like just you know absolute badass artists where you'd be like oh my god well if i had that person's you know body of work and career i'd be damn proud of myself but even that person is um yeah, has a str- struggles to articulate to themselves even the value of their work. And that is so much the work of artists you is like, how do we, how do we build a framework around it other than the crappy ones we get handed either by non-artists or even by artists sometimes. As you point out, there's a lot of structures in our world that, structures in the art world that ostensibly are built on the work of artists that have, uh, that are condescending or dismissive or presumptuous about what it is we do and who we are. And that is so much the work of artists. You let's build these frameworks intentionally. And I offer some, but I'm also just like, let's all build them. <laughs> let's make our own articulations of value because the work deserves that. You know, the work is just too important for us to be walking around crippled by self doubt and financial worry and exhaustion. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's helpful to eliminate those things for our life for our bodies and selves and well-being, but it's also, um, I just think about how much the work suffers when we are doubting ourselves and, you know, exhausted and broke Mm -hmm. all the time. I'm so interested in how you got to all of this, because I think we all, we all exist. We get into art, we get into our respective forms, and we only know what's handed to us until we start to look up and have, have some thoughts and, and then realize that those thoughts actually matter. And I am, I'm really curious about your path and you were a dancer. You're, I think you're actually my first non-singer on the show at the moment. Um, hey, hey. So congratulations. Um, I also think you're my first cis white man. So uh, also congratulations. Hey, hey. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what, what was your path into dancing and what did success mean for you when you were starting? Oh yeah. Well, that's a great question. I discovered dance late in life when I was 19, I took my first dance class and the first week of the class, I went to the teacher and I was like, I think I want to do this with my life. (laughs) And is that crazy? And I was blessed by the fact that she said, no, that's not crazy at all. And let's talk about, how you can do that. There's an advantage that men have in certain parts of the dance world, which is that we don't have to start when we're four. Um, the, comp- the competition for among female dancers requires it would be very, not impossible, but it's much harder to start at age 19. So yeah, there's a sort of, I think about this all the time. 
Like when a woman wants to play football, the men are like, no goddamn way. And when a man wants to dance, the women are like, oh my God, thank God you're here. Come on in. How can we make this easier for you? <laughs> so there's a lot of, um, I just want to point out that advantage that not every, not every person in body can come to dance at 19 and be welcomed the way I was. And I had done a lot of theater growing up and played a lot of sports. And I think dance kind of pulled what I valued out of those two forms and left aside the things I didn't like. And what the reason I kind of stopped doing theater was just pretending to be someone else felt really unhealthy at a certain point in my life when I was growing up and changing and emerging as a person. And it felt too, too easy and seductive to try to put on another identity. And the incredible thing about dance was, Oh, look, this is theater. This is performance. This is, connecting to an audience, but it's just my presence in the world. That's all I'm performing with. There's no fakery. There's no language. There's no, I'm someone else. I just, my actual physical presence is the medium. And that felt so radical and right. I just was like, yes, this is the medium I should work in. But I'd never really, I'd done like theater stuff, but I never felt particularly artistic as a young person. And I had some friends growing up, my closest friends who were all very, wildly creative and artistic. And I think I'd sort of been like, well, I'm not the artistic one. I mean, I get in, I'll do a little play now and then, but I had a story definitely that's like, oh, they're the real artists and I'm not. And um, so it was a little bit of a journey for me to actually, or I should say that I was conscious of being like, I didn't feel like an artist from birth. Some people grow up and they're just like, I've always been an artist. I definitely, that was not me. Mm-hmm. And taking on that role, I think I just felt and saw what it meant to put that garment on. And so I thought a lot about it. I thought a lot about the way that people treated that term and the way people treated that role. And you asked the definition of success. I um, I think part of the reason I've, my, a big piece of my journey has been that we, I started a dance company with two collaborators. And from the beginning, we treated everything outside the studio the same way we treated the stuff in the studio. So we were like, in the studio, we play, we try things out, we experiment, we remake things, we improvise. And if we don't like a thing, we make a new one. (laughs) And the same thing outside the studio, we're like, we can, you know, we can look around at the structures and opportunities, the delivery systems of dance. And if we like them, we can plug them in. And if we don't, we can make a new one. Like we don't, the infrastructure and delivery systems for dance and in Philadelphia, where we were, were very limited. So it wasn't like, um, it wasn't very tempting to just plug into the existing system and ride that to success. Uh, there was a strong sense like we needed to make our own systems, but we had that from the beginning. That was just part of the conversation. Let's build the community we want with other artists. Let's build the relationships with audience that we want. And so when you say definition of success, I think for me, it was like making really bold work that asks really interesting, ridiculous, important questions. (laughs) And then sharing that with an audience, having that cycle of like the audience is part of that experience. The great thing, and you know this as a performer, is that when you perform live, audience is never far from your creative act. You know, you can't, it's not like you're writing novels and shipping them out and you have no idea if anyone reads them, which is what I do now you really, you're in the room. I was in the room with every person who ever saw my dances. Like I was never not in the room. And that's such a, having that place in Philadelphia where we were, I don't know, rooted in, in certain neighborhoods and communities and 
audiences and growing that audience, growing that conversation with that audience, that really felt like success to me. It was that it was those conversations with the audience, the conversations with other artists, the conversations with people who weren't artists, but were kind of interested in what we were doing. That felt, yeah, there were moments when that just felt like a, I don't know, it was like a fire that just got warmer and warmer and warmer. So mm-hmm. that that's what felt like success for me. And was that from the beginning or was that something that you discovered in the process of making? I think the attitude we had from the beginning was one of building the life and the work that we wanted. So I think that was there from the beginning, but I think we found, so we had this moment when we wanted to start this company and we actually looked around. We were like, where should we go? And we knew we didn't want to be in New York because it's very hard to live there, very expensive. And there was also a feeling of there's like thousands of choreographers in New York (laughs) and that's wonderful. It's wonderful. Like the depth of work that happens there, but we also wanted to be, we wanted to be useful. Like we wanted to be somewhere where our work could be useful and of service. And when we, and Philadelphia was not even on our list. We had this short list of cities like Seattle, Chicago, we considered the Bay area. And uh, then we went to Philadelphia to visit a friend and we, that friend took us to this, uh, Big Mess Cabaret, which is this sort of drag show benefit performance art with drinks and stripping. They would they would auction off the dresses as a benefit. So the performers would do a strip and they would auction it off as a benefit for an AIDS charity. And there was like so many kind of, there was incredible choreographers like performing out their work. There were crazy performance artists. There was drag shows, there was music and there was, and there was drinking. And we were like, this is, this is amazing. This feels like everyone really cares about this. It has no pretension and it, um, and there's no boundaries. You know, the dancers aren't like, well, I'm just dance. And the musicians aren't like, well, we're just music. Everyone feels mm-hmm. excited and permitted to be open to each other. So we came to Philly and it really felt like it's not an easy place to, to make a life as a dance artist or to build artistic community back then, but it was a really, it felt useful. People were like, when they heard that, Back then, when you said that you moved to Philly by choice, people were like, really? Why? What, how, how did you, you really didn't have to come here for your job or your school? And then we said, yeah, we want to start a dance company here. And people were like, that's great. Tell me more. And that just that energy, people were like, wow, we're so excited you're here. What are you up to? Um, it felt really, I just want to point that out is it wasn't just that we brought this cool creative energy. We were part of we were sort of welcomed into a city and, a, and various communities that had that same spirit and just no pretension. People, mm-hmm. no one was in Philly because it was cool. Everyone was who was there as an artist just wanted to make their work. And that's just, it's so nice to be around that energy, right? When you're like, yeah, this, I'm not doing this because I want to seem cool or want to be the flashy new thing. I'm doing this because this is the most important work I can do. <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a definition of success for me right there. Yeah. And so how did you find these collaborators for your dance company headlong? How did that collaboration come to be? So my two collaborators, Amy Smith and David Brick, um, still dear, dear friends. They, um, we all went to school together. We went to college together and danced in various ways. We were sort of not all the same, like sort of graduating year, but we had all connected in various dance places around that um and then amy and i also went after we graduated from college 
we went for a year to this very out there experimental dance school in Holland, um, the Centrum von Nu Dance Entwicklung, the Center for New Dance Development in Arnhem. And uh, we spent a year there kind of as, I mean, it was a school, but it was very loosely a school. It was something between a, a, a commune and a cult. It was amazing. Um, so we also had that sort of shared experience of going there and studying really intensely with some really amazing and wild people. Um, and so, yeah, and then we wanted to start this company and the three of us, you know, I, I was in the company for 20 years. Um, company's still going now. David uh, still is in the company. I left eight years ago. Amy left um, two or three years ago. And um, yeah, so for 20 years, we were like artistic family and it's very intense and it's very amazing and it's full of difficulty and growth and struggle and hilarity. Uh, so we had that, yeah, we had that whole family art journey. Yeah. And so you kind of touched on this, that Headlong sort of embodied these principles that you're now teaching in Artists You. And so I'm interested in 2006, you started Artists You and you had already been prioritizing creating a sustainable life with your art. And I'm interested what brought you to this idea for Artists You and this almost aesthetic of of community organizing amongst artists that you kind of describe artists you as? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So organizing with community and organizing with artists is something my dad's company did from the beginning. We were always, we always had a space, like we always had our own studio that we would welcome artists into and we would have classes and people would do showings. And we started this um, free artist run dance festival there are these you know, summer dance festivals, the American Dance Festival and Bates, these kind of big longstanding festivals, but they're pretty expensive and we couldn't really afford them. So we, we just said, all right, in August, everybody quit your jobs for a month and we're just going to like dance together. We're going to do classes and workshops. We'll like collaborate and make stuff. And it was just, you know, I don't know. We had the kind of like brazenness to say that. And then people did. They quit their jobs for a month and we spent a month dancing and co-creating and collaborating and eating meals. And it became, that went on for many, many years, but that's the kind of like, we craved that. We craved that community. We craved that exchange. And um, from the beginning, Headlong was sort of organizing in that way. And then there was, you know, we had a dance company. We had a nonprofit. We started raising money and we became people that, you know, other artists would come to us and say, hey, how do you do this? Can you help me with that? And we found all three of us. So each of us had sort of different aspects of the company. I did fundraising. Amy did the sort of um, all the financials, the taxes, the um, compliance, all the legal stuff. David did like touring, promoting, marketing. So people would go to David and ask marketing questions, come to me and ask fundraising questions. And then the next year, same person would come back like with the same question. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> we're, not, we're not teaching anybody to fish here. We're just handing them fish. So I was... I had this sense of like, we're already doing this and artists in every, there's artists in every community doing this. Like the main support for artists is the sort of free organic artist leaders who we're, we're all co-mentoring each other. Like that's actually how artists sustain themselves. It's not programs like artists, you are a rarity. Most of it is just the informal artist to artist stuff. 
so I just said, well, what if we honor that? And what if instead of just handing out fish, we actually were like, how do we change these working conditions? And that I really noticed, I was like so many artists who are amazing, who are around me, they're struggling so hard. They're so brilliant. Their work is so important. And yet they're coming to me every few months, kind of in a crisis and kind of not knowing how to go forward. They'll achieve something amazing. And then they'll be back to square one and be like, wow, I had that great show and everybody loved it. And Mm. somehow now I feel like I'm right back at the beginning. Mm. So I asked this question, like, what if we tried to like radically for a small number of artists, just like radically pivot things? What if we build a conversation to really take that on? And I'd been doing some work with the Creative Capital Foundation. We were like one of their early grantees back when there weren't 10,000 people applying. It's much easier to get one of their grants. And they had this professional development program. And we were we went through the sort of first messy, chaotic version of it. But the one thing I took away from that was they just said, you're a brilliant artist. You have this huge range of skills. You're incredibly talented. You're not incompetent. You're not a mess. You just have to use those skills that you use in the studio on other aspects of your life. Hmm. You're actually more diversely skilled than almost anyone around you. And you're being told by arts professionals and others that you're like, oh, you're an artist. You're not good with money or you're a mess about this or you need help with that. But in fact, you're incredibly brilliant and you just have to stop being brilliant in the studio exclusively and be brilliant everywhere. And I was like, that's exactly the message (laughs) that just felt. I was like that immediately rang true for all the artists I saw around me. I was like, these people aren't messy. They're not a disaster. They're incredible. They're just the, the challenges that they are facing. They're not currently solving in that creative way. So I sort of tried to turn that into this really intensive program where we did like a big weekend kickoff. Then we met every month as a group with 12 artists and each of those 12 artists met with a one-on-one artist facilitator, like a couple times a month. So it was very intensive. It was like a nine months where you were really trying to sink your teeth into these problems. And it was incredible, like learning different artist journeys, different artists like tools, so much of it was the artists teaching each other and being like, oh, I have an idea for that. Or does anyone have an, a resource for this? And really, um, we did that for six years, six little cohorts of artists. And what started to really show up was this common, underneath the surface differences, there were these common challenges that artists were dealing with. And that's where the work of artists you started to, yeah, build a framework, like here's some principles and mm-hmm. here's some tools. That's really what artists you is like, here's some principles for thinking about this question. Cause a lot of, like a lot of artists are thinking about the questions in pretty unanswerable, unsustainable ways. Like the way the question is phrased, it's not, no answer is going to work out well <laughs> for the artist. <laughs> so how do we phrase the question? How do we, how do we approach this from a framework of principles that are actually sustainable and that actually honor what artists do? And then here's a whole bunch of tools that we've collected from hundreds of artists all over the place. You know, maybe some of these are useful. We'll just lay them out on the table. Mm. And that's, um, yeah, that's sort of how that started. And then I started doing it in other places and I started doing it in smaller little chunks, but it always was the same conversation. How do we, um, how do we use these incredibly complex skills? We solve really hard problems, like nonlinear, subtle problems artistically 
Let's use those to address these other questions, some of which are boring, boring linear problems. Mm. What are those questions that, if you could have an example of a question that starts out as something that has no way of being empowering and no way of even of being solved in a sustainable way and turning that question into something that can be. Why am I not famous yet? Uh, mm. Or why don't I have the career that this person over here has? Right? Those are total dead-end questions. Mm. And none of them are grounded in your actual work or mission as an artist. They're really about the fickle, random attention of outsiders. And part of what showed me that is that, because I did that too, I would look at other artists and be like, man, if I just had that, that career, that journey, those three, I'd be, mm, I'd be all set. And then I started to work with that, that artist through Artist You, and they were saying the exact same shit about somebody else. <laughs> they were like, yeah, my, my, I hate my situation. It's a mess. But if I have what that person has, then I was like, oh, wait a minute. This uh-huh. whole thing, no one is actually taking, starting from the point of view of their own work, their own needs and resources, their own mission. Everyone is looking outward at some other artists and they're craving external validation, which is just... Mm. We all want it. Like, it's so human to want that validation, but it's, you're never going to get enough of it. Like, there's just, it's unanswerable. There's no amount mm-hmm. of validation that I've never seen an artist be like, well, okay, I think I've been validated. Now I'm ready to get to work. Like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> you just say, like, well, what's the next thing? Or why didn't I get this? Or I feel good for five minutes, but now I want to get another one. Like, it's a, you know, it's compulsive, it's a little addictive. It, so, it's the question. So true. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, it's it's just so true. And I'm thinking about, um, I'm really thinking right now about one of the things that this podcast just generally was made to rail against, which is this system we've set up in the opera world of this is how you become an opera singer. You go to undergrad, you go to master's, you get in your young artist programs. Um, first you pay for them, then they start to pay you pay peanuts and you say thank you and then you go and you get representation and and I like to say unicorns and fairy dust fly out of your ass and you're you're just set you know and what you're saying is this goes on with everyone just in a different form depending on the art form it's actually kind of comforting to hear that maybe my sector isn't so messed up yes (laughs) No, I agree because I used to think that about dance. I was like, well, we're just really broken and crazy in the dance world. But then I'd be like, wow, painters are having the same thing. Filmmakers are having the same thing. It's the different myth. Like it's a different fairy dust coming out of your butthole, but it's the same structurally. It's the same story, which is about um, a very limited path. And even when it's not limited by institutions. So opera like ballet is very limited institutionally. That's both true and it's a story that is told. But even forms that are not as institutionally limited, um, that have a range of ladders to climb, there still are like, well, here are the ladders. And every discipline has their myth and their here's how I'll get ahead. And none of them, the important thing to realize, the the, the thing that helped me see through it was like, whoa, the person who actually did the thing (laughs) that I thought I should do, they're having the same crisis, the same lack of resource, the same unsustainable life, and the same self-doubt. So wait, this whole thing is bullshit. How do we start again and build build 
these journeys, not from what we've been told or from what the structures tell us, but from what the work is telling us, what the community is telling us, what the audience is telling us, what fellow artists are telling us. That's the exciting, that's the creative process of an artist's life. Mm, absolutely. And do you, I've been thinking about this um, recently since kind of choosing this path. There is, there's a sort of vulnerability in it that is not there when you're actually going, going according to this path that's been painted out. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, re- we all want to, we all would love to have signposts of like where to go. And that's true in a lot of fields. You know, I think a lot of, my sister's a doctor, a medical doctor, and there's like a certain train she was on and she, she went on that train. And then at a certain point, she swerved onto a different track and that took courage and that took like vision and that took forgiveness and that took honoring who she was, which is different from the, what the train tracks were set up to do. So we're not the only people who confront that, but I do think that's a huge thing. And especially, you know, you're really in a sector and in, I would even call it an industry that has, that wants to have a ton of top-down control. And that's, different from the experimental dance world where there's it's it's a little looser (laughs) there's a lot of you're expected to be different you're rewarded for being different you come out Mm. with something no one's made before people like oh wow great we want to lift that up but still there's there's control and there's myth but i would say you know the particulars for opera singers are are there's a particularly strong pressure from the top down and you also have that problem that actors and dancers and designers have, which is that you're often wholly or largely dependent on others to make your art. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for an actor or dancer or singer, because if you don't have a job or a gig, are you still an artist? Like, what do I do? Mm. I've talked with a lot of artists like that. I mean, they're often called interpretive artists. I don't like that term, but I would say, um, call it I would call it um collaborative <laughs> artists artists who work in, in processes mm. but to find a way to practice your work ongoing so that it never stops the gigs engage you more give you more time more space new challenges but that the gigs are not the beginning and end of your practice your practice is lifelong and belongs to you you know the gig the gig rents it the gig borrows it and too often we confuse the gig with the practice. We're like, well, that's who I am. I'm when I'm in a role, when I'm in a show, when I'm doing a process, when I'm in rehearsal, then I'm an artist. When I'm not, I'm not. And I think that surrender of our practice and voice, that's that's when the top-down power starts to take control of us. If we don't give that up, then we get to we get to see those people as partners and not, you know, mom and dad mm. in charge of everything. I thought that was so powerful that's a part of your seminar uh, that we have to start seeing ourselves as partners, not as beggars. And when I read that, I was like, can I get this on a bumper sticker? Can I get it on a tote bag? Because it has taken me so long to get there and showing up as a partner, showing up, knowing your mission, which I think is another key thing that you talk about, knowing, knowing my mission as an artist I don't need a huge structure to make this happen for me. I can actually, there are so many things that I can do on my own or so many people I can go to on my own and say, hey, what do you think? 
And we, it never even crosses our minds as um, collaborative, interpretive artists that that's something that we can do. And that's actually why I have a huge problem with this idea that we are not generative artists, which is something that is really widely accepted as a way of thinking in the opera world, that we're not generative, we reproduce. And I'm like, I'm not a machine. Um, (laughs) But I think it's this idea that there has to be something there already in order for me to do my art. Um, And you you really turn it on its head when you talk about this being a partner versus being a, what was, what's the opposite that you had said? I wrote down being a beggar, but I'm not sure if that's what you yeah. said. Yeah. Well, I think of the institutions as partners, not parents. And I think of us as partners, not beggars or partners, not children. But yeah, mm. I think you're really putting your finger on something. I like, yeah, I don't like the term interpretive artist. I like shared process artists because there's some artists for whom being part of a shared process is where a lot of their artistry takes place. And that is mm-hmm. in dance, that's absolutely the case. And my dancers are not interpretive artists. They are generative artists. They are making, they are creating. They're in the studio, manifesting, generating, offering their choreographic brilliance, their artistic brilliance. And I think that story that gets told in the ballet world, in the opera world, in the theater world, I think it's, I, I don't think it's an accident. I think it's one of the ways that the labor is exploited, that you can control people better when you've told them that their role is lesser than the real artists and that you can control people better when you tell them their role is replaceable, that they are fungible, that it'd be like, well, we could just sub you out. Well, we can't sub out you know, the composer or the director or the music director, but we could certainly sub out the, the dancers and the singers. And I think that's, there's a, there's a labor oppression there, but I think it really starts inside us when we when we accept that role, we've already, we've already lost. This is what I mean about unanswerable questions. The question of like, well, how am I going to get a good interpretive role as a dancer? It's like, well, you've already assigned yourself this lesser diminished role. Mm. Why don't you say, well, what am I about artistically? What are the situations where I thrive? What is my practice? What is my mission? How do I feed that? And not just in processes, not just in rehearsal and performance. How do I feed that? day in, day out, then we become, uh, I think then we step into the power of our role because we we can yell and scream about the institutions and I'm happy to do that too, because I can- It's fun, it's just fun. It's just fun. But I do, part of me is also like, you know, well, step the hell up artists. Like you're actually mm-hmm. bigger than this. Like, why are you, you are, you have a brilliance and a problem solving ability and ability to create something out of nothing. That's, that's a superpower. Like, why are you sitting here listening to what someone who has no idea what you do is telling you? Why are you obeying them? Why are you granting them that authority? So I do like to complain about the structures, but I also like to be like, come on, y'all, like, let's step up. Why are we, why are we agreeing to these terms? Let's, let's step into our own creative power. Absolutely. And I think there's a real awakening right now in the opera world that is so exciting. Um, we have these organizations like the Black Opera Alliance. I just went to a seminar. This is actually going to be coming out in February. It's November 18th. I went to a seminar yesterday <laughs> with the Black Opera Alliance called Shade, where they really had this discussion about how differently you come to a situation like an audition 
when in your culture, you are always cheered, like when you give of yourself, when you give of your art, you get something back that there's, there's somebody who is just so excited that they're, they're raising their hands or they're yelling or they're clapping and you're in the middle of singing. And then you walk into an audition and somebody barely even looks at you. And this whole interchangeability of, um, of the artists, I think it gets down to the root of what is wrong here the entire time, which is we are not interchangeable. Nobody in this process is interchangeable. If you need to get somebody else, that's fine, but it's because you need them and you hired me because you need me. And that, I think in my, in my career path, that was always the thing that made me feel so alienated and invisible. And um, I actually didn't even think of myself as an artist until I decided to leave the opera industry. It took wow. that decision. So I was 33. Wow. I had, I had been working for how many years is it? Eight years. And I had about six years of education. Wow. That's yeah. powerful. I also think it's important to remember there are so many artistic traditions that don't come out of that hierarchical binary, generally Eurocentric thinking. And mm. part of the great thing about Artists U is going around and working with artists from so many different traditions, backgrounds, spaces. Um, you look at what happens in, in hip hop and what success is and who gets to regulate it and who's in control of it and what the spaces are and the relation between the artist and the community. Very different than ballet, like just a radically different form of dance. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, um, and I think that's important because we sometimes, well, I do want to, I think it's so important to change some of these structures that have been really limiting artists and art. I also think we already have so many incredible examples of things that artists in our country, in our culture have built without those structures, with different values, with different relationships to community and with different relationships to resource and wealth. Mm. So, yeah, and I just I just say that because sometimes there's a like, um, well, for example, you talk about like, I assume what you're talking about is race in opera and mm-hmm. Part of what I hear is like, well, how do we make opera more embracing of people from different races? But partly I'm also like, well, how do we actually look to what black and brown artists have been doing for generations and opera can change their shit because there's, mm-hmm. there are artistic practices and communities and ways of making and delivering work that are in a totally different frame and that actually resonate arguably more broadly with more people. So I, I think sometimes that inclusion work ignores the fact that we actually have brilliant structures made by artists that the the big structures should learn from Mm. it's almost this this fundamental problem with the word include because it means that i have to grant you access yeah who's Um, who's in who's who's doing the including (laughs) yeah exactly um and i think this kind of this kind of leads us into a little segue on a little bit of what we started this whole conversation talking about, which is being a parent and taking care of your own little creation, your child, 
while also keeping up that artistic practice and feeling like there's a place for you in the art form. So that's a huge thing. A lot of particularly mothers in opera just leave. They don't feel like there's any place for them and they don't see how to sustain themselves that way. Yeah, very true in the dance world too. I mean, for years there was a story that, well, if you really care about the art form and you really want to succeed, well, you won't have kids because that- Oh, that is uh, big you, in you, the opera. You're, you're basically, yeah, you're basically saying like, well, you're, it's not the priority anymore, like that idea. I mean, so destructive, so misogynist. And, you know, the other thing it does, and I, this is part of why it's self-perpetuating, is that when you, when you sideline artists who are having kids, you stop hearing from those artists. You, start having, you stop having art that's made from the point of view of someone who has had a child or is raising a child. And yeah. you, you limit that for everyone. And then all of the moms and dads and people raising kids out in the world who want the art that is grounded in those questions, it's not available. Yeah, I think it's huge. And it's, um, I don't think there is like an art world. There are many different art worlds, but the bias against parents in the art world, I think is pervasive and inexcusable. The, the intense racism and white supremacy in many art worlds is really unfathomable. It's, it's far beyond what happens in a lot of other sectors. Again, I always want to come at it from the point of view of like, what we have as artists and what we build rather than like what's keeping us down. <laughs> so what can we I be also, mad about? Yeah. And I, I, I do, it's very easy to complain about structures that really have very little intention of supporting artists. And even if they wanted to have very little resource and they're not the solution. So I do, I do like to rail, but then I also like to say, well, let's look at the artists like artists who have built community around raising kids, artists who have built um, where the responsibility for the art doesn't fall just to one person, where the responsibility for the care of the child doesn't fall just to one person. Like, let's look at models that artists have built and communities have built that, that treat child rearing and artist artistic work in very different ways and, and mm -hmm. formulate them in sustainable ways. So I do want to rail, but I also want to say like people have been doing it. You know, we did this artist raising kids series of workshops and interviews and, and surveys. And the incredible thing for me as an artist parent was just hearing from hundreds of artist parents to be like, yeah, you can do this. You know, this was hard for me. This part was great. Here's a little solution I did, but you know what? You can do this. And you suddenly realize like, oh, there's artist parents everywhere. Like that whole myth is, is BS. Like it's actually, it's everywhere. And if we start connecting, this is why it's community organizing to me. That's when we find our solutions, that's when we find our power. And that's when we stop waiting for the institutions to support us. Because I I just honestly don't think that's ever gonna happen. And I don't mean that to say we should stop pushing institutions. I just mean we should be realistic about the possible benefits and resources that will come from them and realize that even if they do start to pivot whether or not our lives are sustainable is mostly a question we have to wrestle with. It is not up to the structures. Mm -hmm. We will have to make our lives sustainable. We will have to find community and organize. And we can do that with and without the structures. Mm, absolutely. And I think just going back to what you were saying about there's all these parents, they're coming out of the woodwork, they've been making art. And yet there aren't these stories out there about parenthood or 
you know, coming to that. And I think, um, I don't know. I just think that's such an interesting question about us not silencing that part of ourselves, not trying to tuck it away as something that's just not integral into, into who we are and who we are as artists. Yeah, absolutely. And it was having kids. So I actually started Artist U right after I had my first kid, which was <laughs> crazy in retrospect. But I think part of it was raising kids really clarified my mission for me. Like when I had a kid, I was suddenly like, oh, I'm doing 35 different things, but they're not all important to me. And actually what, what is important to me and what was important was, you know, more strong, powerful art made by more thriving artists and getting out in the world. And some of that's my art. Like I want my art to go out in the world. I want to make it. And some of it is how I can work with and organize with and support other artists and all the other stuff, all the kind of career anxieties, the fantasies about like how I could be, <laughs> you know, performing at the Brooklyn Academy of Music someday. That was my fantasy. That was going to be on BAM. I'm never going to perform at BAM. Uh, <laughs> but that stuff just fell away in a really organic way. I was, it just mm. suddenly with a kid, I was like, well, that's bullshit. Mm. And this over here is not, this feels real. And that's why I started our students. I was like, I can keep making my own work, but I can have so much more impact on the world if I'm also building structures that support other artists like that a hundred years from now, like my work will <laughs> be barely a glimmer, but like this work where artists are changing their own conversations, like that's going to change. That changes so much more than just one book or one dance. Absolutely. I know we're at times. So if you have, if you need to leave, that's totally fine. I, of course, yeah, I have more questions. I could up. talk to you all day, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. could certainly make another time to talk even later today if you want, but I should, um, I should go get my child. Go Speaking of child, parenting. Too. Speaking of parenting, I actually, <laughs> I cut off, I had to cut off my final interview for season one because I had to go get my child. I was like, ah. Exactly. So I totally understand. Um I'm just, I'm sending you a lot of love and light for what you guys are going through right now. And um, thank you. I hope everything goes well. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being on. One last thing. Um, how can people keep track of you? Because you're not oh, on yeah. social. So, so, yeah, we can talk more about that. Why I think social media is the devil. Uh, you know, the best ways to get on the mailing list, I have a mailing list for artists you. You can sign up at artistsu.org and then my own work you can follow at andrewsimonette.com uh, I have an email list too so I mostly most of what I do is write and email it out that's the way to that's the way to follow my story I do it you know in that very 90s way the old emails all right thank you so much yeah thank you and it's just great I love talking about I do know some about the opera world but I just love hearing about other disciplines than my own because it sheds I don't know, it just sheds light on like my own assumptions. Each world is like its own world. And I'm like, right, what's my world? <laughs>
are going to www.makingitnopera.com. That's making it without the G. We'll be back in two weeks with an in-depth talk with singer, coach, and activist, Jamie Aliwal. See you then.